it's tough. Uh, you know, I think again, statistics, uh, 85% of small businesses fail because people give up. It's really easy to give up. We made the, the go for 20 years and, you know, finally came to the conclusion that it's not that we wanted to give up, but we'd done what we needed to do or wanted to do. And we were ready to move on. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 124. I'm finally getting rid of the cold that I had in the last few intros, and so I kind of sound like myself again. And uh, I, I'm really excited for today's episode because I had a guy named Tom Heller reach out on my LinkedIn after some of the postings that we'd done about one of the recent episodes, and he had noted some of the things that he went through in his exit. So I asked him if he'd be on the show. He's a local guy here in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, and he shared just a super real, authentic story of growing, building, selling, and transitioning into life after. And I just had an absolute blast with him because of how real he was. So he describes how he started it, how he was growing his uh, agency, buying a company, learning things along the way to the point where he hit some thresholds personally, and then also from the, the, the restrictions and capital, and then really some thought that he put into, what should I be doing with this business? What's gonna happen on the forefront? And then how do I unwind my identity and my capital from this company that I built? And what is this 20 year marathon actually doing? And what do I want the next chapter to be like? So he was just an absolute gem on the show and describing his story. And we also talked in some very colorful uh, stories about his experience with the broker and and some of the, the challenges they, they had when he was going to market. But I think this episode is important for anybody that is listening that has a business and could potentially be selling their business to a third party because Tom explains what it's like to end up working for someone else and just eyes wide open, go in that knowing that you've got to build a valuable business, but then picking that right buyer where it feels right and that you trust them. And then what is your relationship going to be with that business post-closing? Is a big chunk of your money going to be tied to an employee green and earn earnout where your success is tied to you being an employee and making decisions and living in that environment over the course of the next few years i just think it's something that you really need to think about because it's something that is a real option compared to some of the other third party or the other internal ones like an ESOP or an internal transition or whatever it might be. I just, it's it's so important to think about before you're sitting at the deal table, making sure that you have to get that deal done because you've already gone that far. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Tom. If you have any questions or want to do any more research on the different exit options or how your company's value, go onto the GEXP Collaborative website. We've got a ultimate guide on how to value a business and all the different financial financial numbers that are going to be important to you. We've also got two different guides about all the different internal and third-party exit options and the pros and cons of each of these so you can think about it before marching down one direction. With that being said, without further ado, here's my episode with Tom Heller. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Doing good. I'm looking forward to our uh, our interview here because 
we had some mutual contacts that we were all kind of chatting up on a LinkedIn post that I did. And we had Derek Sussner, it was a little shout out to him that had replied because he had read the Built to Sell book and he had been talking about the different things in his business that he'd been working on as looking for the future for his. And you had commented and said that, yeah, there's some serious things that you need to know because you've been through your own. And then you and I started chatting and I was like, well, this is going to be fun because both here in the Twin Cities and uh, you've been through an exit. And you've you had a pretty long run at it, Tom. So, you know, before we get into the meat of it, maybe you, you had, uh, as we were chatting before, you'd said that you'd started the business in college, but you know, why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Like how did that whole situation come to fruition? Um, well, I don't think that I decided to become an entrepreneur. I think <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur by birth, um, fortunately or unfortunately. But I started my first company, um, and that's how Derek and I met. We were actually uh, in the same class at the University of Minnesota, uh, Design Communications. And I had an opportunity through one of the classes to do um, some work for the American Lung Association, uh, a couple of direct mail pieces. And uh, I think I was working seven or full-time and, and taking 17 credits that quarter. And so, I, you know, obviously uh, really busy. Um, crank some stuff out minutes before class. They ended up loving it. And that kicked off about a six year working relationship with the American Lung Association. And oh my gosh. Basically started my company. So, and, and you were doing direct mailing for them? Yeah, a lot of their direct mail sticker campaigns, uh, fundraising campaigns. So, in what, what, uh, what part of college was this in? Was this mid, mid college or like he? Uh, I believe it was my sophomore junior year. And again, I, I feel like I'm, I'm a born entrepreneur. When I was in fourth grade, I won an entrepreneurial essay contest. Um, spent summers with my grandfather who ran his own marketing promotions business down in Mankato. And so I think it's always been in my blood. Um, and then this opportunity came up in college and I just ran with it. So was your heart always drawn to marketing? Yeah, I've always been a creative person. Yeah. So how did you decide to build them? Like, like, was there any kind of thought behind like, okay, here's what the service is going to look like. Here's what I'm going to be doing for them. Or is it just more of like kind of shooting from the hip? Oh, definitely shooting from the <laughs> hip. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was, uh, it was flying by the seat of my pants. I had a couple of really great mentors at the university of Minnesota. Um, Felix Ampa was an illustration professor. Uh, who has since passed away, but he was unbelievable. Um, and there's a number of other uh, professors, Patrick Redman and a few others. Uh, I apologize if I'm not naming all the proper names, but um, some really great mentors that helped me along the way, how to price my work, you know, even business advice that was way out of the realm of, of you know, what they were supposed to do for their students, but they went way above and beyond and really helped me get it, get it off the ground. That's super cool. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people don't necessarily have is some, some foundational people there that are giving them like solid advice instead of them just kind of flying by the seat of their pan and pants. And curious time is like, so what are some of the major milestones? So maybe kind of give us like what, as you were growing the business, what was, you know, did, what was the direction that did you have a, very, a strategic plan? Was it more of just getting clients as they were coming in kind of what was the, the first growth phase like and how, how did you approach that? Well, really, again, the kickoff with that big client with the American Lung Association, that kind of carried me through. And then just through sheer will and determination, I added clients along the way, um, did some networking, you know, the, the obvious things around town, uh, Chamber of Commerce and, you know, 
other things, uh, connecting with friends and family. Uh, but I would say the biggest growth uh, spurt for us was probably 2005, I believe, right around there. I decided to purchase another company. So I've been on both sides of you know the the sale and purchase of a company, um, having purchased another company and then sold mine. That immediately took us overnight from you know me working out of my basement and doing very well uh, as a sole proprietor to now I've got three full time employees, um, soon to add more and office space and all kinds of other issues that I'd never really had to deal with and. Uh, and so that was a challenge. And shortly after that, I'd done some consulting work for, I don't think it's a problem to name names here, but for National Alamo Car Rental uh, before they moved their headquarters down to Tulsa. So I was doing some graphic design consulting work for them. And then when I purchased the other company, I essentially ended my contract, my consulting contract with them. And one of their managers went on to Honeywell and she caught, she called me up shortly after that and said, you know, we're, we're looking at outsourcing all of our technical communication and just wondering, I know you purchased another company and you're ramping up your business, wondering if you'd like to, you know, bid on the contract. And I was embedded with the TechCom team at National Alamo. So I, I had a good understanding of that business um, and that service offering. So I said, yeah, what the heck? And so I bid on the contract, ended up getting it. And those are the things that some business owners look at or people who want to start their own business. And they're like, oh, how, how awesome is that? You landed a huge contract with Honeywell. It, it was awesome. It was great, but it was unmanageable growth for the most part. It, you know, my wife and I didn't take a paycheck for maybe six months because we had to ramp up, hire three or four people, um, buy all of the equipment, add additional office space. And we're based on the terms of the contract, we didn't get paid for over a hundred days. Oh my gosh. So, you know, we had to uh, really <laughs> scrape together everything we could uh, to, to get through that gap. Uh, once we did, then it was great. And we ended up, you know, having, keeping the, the Honeywell contract for well over 12 years. And now uh, after I sold the company, they're, they're still working with Honeywell. So that, that's super interesting story. I, <clears throat> I want to, kind of unpack that in some of the phases. So curious time, like, so what made you, what, what triggered it from you going and working in the basement to buying a company? Like, was there like a, a reason to get into additional products and services or buying talent or sounded interesting or as a friend, like what, what give us some color and backdrop on that? Um, I think the timing was right. I was doing a lot of consulting work. I was growing my freelance business and somebody actually, the, the, owner of that company sought me out. And I don't know how he found me, if it was, you know, through networking groups or local chamber of commerce or, or what it was. And I have a, a background in, in book design and typesetting publishing. Uh, and that's the company that I purchased. It was almost exclusively book design and typesetting, mm. um, working with publishers and vanity presses. And so he sought me out and the timing was right. Uh, like I said, I was growing my business and I was I was getting a little bit tired of, you know, kind of hitting a ceiling with my own freelance business and sole proprietorship. And I wanted to, I wanted to take that leap. Now I didn't do it in a very strategic way. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, but the, the purchase of that company, um, vaulted me to that next level. What kind of mistakes, uh, when you say that, I'm assuming there's a couple of vivid ones that are on the top of your mind. Is, is there any, 
<laughs> that you'd like to share? <laughs> well, there's there. Yeah, I think there are uh, countless errors and mistakes. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I'm married well. My wife is extremely organized, uh, analytical, planner. Uh, you know, all of that, all of the things that I'm not. Um, you know, by birth, I'm a not only an entrepreneur but a creative person. So I'm right-brained. I'm, I tend to be a, a bit unorganized. Um, I think after our second federal tax penalty, she took over the books for the business and, <laughs> and, and helped with all of that. But uh, I would say the biggest mistakes was just not being strategic, not being really thoughtful about all of the details of not just running a business and, and, and buying another business and the employees and everything that went into it. You know, some of the downside to going basically straight from college to running my own company is I didn't, you know, I worked for a small publishing company for a little while. And I like to say that I learned everything about managing people based on, you know, my bad experience with that. And I won't name names there, but it's just, you know, going straight from college, essentially to running my own business. I didn't have that experience to draw on of working with employees and running a company all of the numerous things that go into that. And so it was basically just trial by fire and learn from your mistakes. Hopefully, you know, don't repeat them. So how did, how did you end up valuing the business and what was the kind of the structure that you went into that with? Was it more just you acquiring them and their customers and cash flow or what was some of the ways that you learned as far as how to, to purchase a company? Yeah, well, with regard to that, I worked with a little bit with an attorney, but again, it was that was a, a an educational experience more than anything, and I think we did pretty well. the The company was a small company; we didn't we didn't pay a ton of money for it, and it ended up working out really well for us. It vaulted us into the next level. I basically just purchased their their client list. They had numerous clients that they they build direct to. Uh, the client, but the the way the business was structured was they essentially were with two major publishing companies or vanity presses. So even though they build the clients directly, uh, independent authors and others, uh, they would have to then pay a percentage of any any of that work to those two publishing companies. And so I I took all of that into consideration when we were negotiating the sale of the business, and I, I you know I think we did okay um, in the valuation part of it. But I, I made a lot of changes right away after taking over the business that helped uh, increase revenue, decrease expenses. Quite honestly, it, it, I changed the entire business. Two years after I, I purchased the business, with, within two years, we had more than doubled the revenue. And I had basically eliminated the two major sources of revenue when I purchased the company. So I, I, I diversified the revenue stream. Mm -hmm. and, and doubled it. So then we're, you know, on that two year mark afterwards, like what was the, like the, you know, the, what was your vision? What was the vision for the business? Was it just to keep, you know, bringing in certain kinds of work? Was it like, so there was a, you know, a bigger vision that you had kind of in the back of your mind as far as you, where you want to take the company? I think, you know, when I was a young, stupid, <laughs> creative uh, entrepreneur, I thought, well, you know, I want to run a big Minneapolis agency, but I, I didn't have any, agency experience. I didn't know how to run a big, you know, Minneapolis agency or any big city agency for that matter. So I think the vision that I had for the company was unrealistic. And over time, I, I came 
to realize that I was what, what I was, was essentially just a, a really good boutique agency, uh, marketing creative in Minneapolis. And that's what it was. We did, you know, certain types of work. We also did some technical. So we had kind of this right brain, left brain thing going on, which made us unique in this market. But I came to realize over a number of years that I was never going to be that 10 million, 20 million, $30, you know, $30 million agency in Minneapolis. And I was, I, I learned to be okay with that. So then what was the, which is great. Cause I mean, I think that's, it's a, I think there's internal conflict that people have when there's like this big vision. Cause I mean, a lot of us entrepreneurs were big vision people, right? So if you're trying to chase something that's unrealistic, I mean, it puts a serious stress on your family life, your personal, your personal mentality and sanity too. So, oh, yeah. and then, you know, like what's it, which is interesting too, because you had also mentioned that, you know, capital was an issue with you as you guys are growing too. And that's the challenge of a lot of small businesses of trying to make sure that they can afford the growth because with growth comes significant risk and significant capital issues. So like, you know, as you, you know, so I'm trying to think of like how to put this in the timeline. So about what year was that, that you acquired it? Then like, as you're kind of having that mental shift and like, okay, this is the, the, we're a boutique shop here. You know, what was it just, what was a triggering event that led you to this potential sale? Was there, was there issues going on in the industry? Was there things going on and you know, what, what instigated some of the stuff and like how much time went by from you kind of hitting that, like, okay, I understand where, what we're doing, where, where we're at from that triggering event. Well, again, we purchased um, the, the other company at about, at about 2005. And I would say um, probably around, between 2012 to, you know, maybe 14, I hit a really nice place where I was real content with, with where we were at with the business. It was steady income. We, we were growing, but not, you know, unmanageable growth. Uh, it was comfortable. I was relaxed. I, I had great client relationships, great people working for me and with me. But then I looked out at the horizon and I, I thought to myself, well, and I don't know all the statistics, you probably know them a lot better than I do, but I heard something somewhere that, you know, within the so many number of years, like 40% of the workforce is going to be leaving the workforce or, you know, some, some number like that. And, and I thought to myself, well, looking out 10 years, 15 years down the road, I'm 47 years old. And if I'm going to retire, is, is there going to be anyone left that can buy my business? or wants to buy my business. I mean, with the baby boomers all retiring and, or, you know, eventually it happens to all of us, we pass away. Is there going to be any, anybody there that wants or, or, you know, is willing to take over my company? My kids have all told me that there's no way in heck they want to do it. So, you know, I, I was looking out and I thought to myself, well, there is no better time for me to, to put my company up for sale and get the most money for it uh, than now. So super interesting because yeah, there's, like you said, there's some interesting stats that are underlying that and like kind of your thought process and curious Tom, like where, where were you, where, was there any resources or resources or something that you were getting that, that was kind of feeding that, that thought process? And then the next level of that is I want to get into what do you mean by like ready for and how long did that take you? So like, you know, from the kind of the decision of like, I'm comfortable to having those thoughts, like how long did that take and where were you getting that information? 
Well, uh, I went through a period. I'm, I, I, historically, I've never been a reader per se, uh, but I went through a period where I was just voraciously reading business books, everything I could get my hands on, as well as you know everything on the internet that I could look at from a from a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of different sources that were feeding that. And although I was really content in my business and comfortable and relaxed and everything was going great, I also wanted to anticipate the future. And it's funny because I'm watching, I'll probably get the name of the show wrong, but Marvelous Miss Maisel right now. It's a pretty popular Amazon Prime show. Hmm. And there's a business owner on there, um, one of the main characters, uh, Mm -hmm. Fathers. And he made a comment and it just so hit a chord with me. And he said, it feels like I've been running a marathon for 20 years. (laughs) And that's exactly how I felt in the moment that I decided to really seriously consider and, and talk to my wife about, you know, putting our company up for sale. And that's, that's really how I felt was it's this constant hustle. Even if you're in a comfortable place <laughs> with your business and it's doing well, you know, you've got a great client base, repeat customers, your, your billing structure, your corporate structure, everything is, is where, you know, where you worked all these years to get it to. I just felt like, man, I'm exhausted. And, if we lose Honeywell tomorrow, I got to get, I got to get something else. And so it's this constant mental strain and stress and, and the constant hustle of it. And I was just tired of running that 20 year marathon and uh, decided to market my company. And yeah. that, that, that kind of mental switch, I would say really hit probably right around 2014, 2015. And that, so that's when you were watching that TV show. <laughs> no, that's actually right now. So oh, okay, okay, got yeah, it. They're in their yeah, second season, like, and I I heard that comment. And I ref, I was reflecting back on yeah, like, yeah, right. I get it. <laughs> well, it's funny, Tom. Uh, when it happened for us, because like I we were grinding, 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 like rebuilding the business and like investing in the new industries. And my my dad and I went out for beers, and he just looked at me and right actually by where you are at Granite City in Roseville, mm-hmm. he just was like. I'm over this shit. <laughs> I was just like, all right, I get it. And cause it is, it, it's such a, it's such a marathon. And I, you know, I'm curious because of like the size of your business and like, and I don't know if there's, if you feel, if you're open to disclose as far as how many employees or top line revenue or anything, but just to, for some benchmarks, if not, it's okay. But um, I'm curious on that. And then like your thought process behind, you know, I think there's this huge hurdle in the, we call them like, you know, like the sec, the first stage, second stage businesses are hitting some of those big milestones from the million dollar to the $5 million. These, these are that are really big where there's a lot of capital thresholds that like, it becomes very difficult where I see that there's so many entrepreneurs where they, they finally start making the money that they've deserved for like a decade. And then it's just kind of like, okay, <laughs> versus like piling it back into the business to keep hitting the growth. So there's this like kind of almost like, you know, risk adjusted situation in their head. And like, I'm finally making the money. And then like, did you, did you consciously like looking back, did you kind of hit something like that? Or was it more like, like, does that make sense at all? How, how yeah, it does. Yeah. And I would say that's you, you definitely hit on it. I mean, that's, that was a big part of it as well. I mean, we finally got the business to where you, we wanted it to be. We were making good money. We were paying our employees good money. Everything was going really well, but yeah, it was, it was a point where I was more or less burnt out. Right. Well, yeah. and the reason I asked that Tom is because like, 
I, I sat down with someone recently and I was like, okay, because they were like almost 2 million bucks, you know, they're probably pulling down 200 grand. And like, the question was like, and they, they're a similar situation, like, like a big customer concentration there, their vendors had, so there's some constraints in all these different areas. Mm-hmm. And I said, Hey, like if you could double or triple the value of your company in the next two or three years, would you do it? But knowing that you would have to find more money or like, you know, reinvest it yourself and do these hard things. And then they just looked at me like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, no, and that's exactly where we were at. And I think my wife had come to the the conclusion that I slowly came to probably around 2010 or earlier, you know, she's, she's not, well, she's much more averse to risk uh, than I am, you know, being an entrepreneur, the, the entrepreneur that I am. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she, she would always make comments like, well, are you ready to get a, a real job? Uh, you know, things like that. Um, <laughs> much sooner than, than I, uh, came to that conclusion, but yeah, it's, it's tough. Uh, you know, I think again, statistics, uh, 85% of small businesses fail because people give up. It's really easy to give up. We, we made the, the go for 20 years and, you know, finally came to the conclusion that it's not that we wanted to give up, but we'd done what we needed to do or wanted to do. And we were ready to move on. Um, and not ready to reinvest huge sums of money or take out loans or debt. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran the company debt free for over 20 years. Wow, good for we you. had a line of credit, but we never had any debt. So we, we just weren't really, especially at, you know, 46, 47 years old, we didn't want to take out a bunch of debt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to one of your previous comments about taking a real job. So like, <laughs> I don't remember who it was early on in the podcast, Someone said something about entrepreneurs is what's our title. And, and the title is we're professionally unemployable. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, we have never worked for someone else, but like we're kind of trapped in this big golden cage that we've created ourselves. Yeah. No, and it's true. I mean, I, after the sale of the company, I have a non-compete. So I have some limitations with, with uh, my ability to, to work and generate income in, in certain areas. Um, but through the negotiation of the sale of my company, the one uh, business or company or entity that I, I deliberately wrote into the contract as a, a, an exclusion to non, my non-compete was my church. And they ended up, it was the, again, the timing was right. They needed somebody full-time in that, in that capacity. And so they brought me on full-time and it worked out great. But to be completely honest, and you know, I had a two-year employment agreement after the sale of my company to help transition and just personality differences and things. I mean, they're, they're a great company. They're doing things really well. They're doing it their way, which is, you know, what they should be doing. Which is not Tom's way. Well, yeah. (laughs) I I have to respect that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not the owner anymore, but you know, so I, in that two year timeframe, I was throwing out a few resumes, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I feel like myself and a lot of people like me are more or less unemployable. You know, a lot of these HR people, the recruiters, they'll, they'll look at your resume and they're like, oh, you ran your own company for 20 years. Well, we don't want you because you're not going to do it our way. You know? <laughs> right. My dad's literally, yeah, trust me. Like, uh, that's why I started this business. And that's why, I mean, like, it, it the, there's this whole, like, you can't go back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so let, let's go back to, because like the, the, some of the, the notes that you'd written on the LinkedIn thread, I think will be, we can kind of unwind from your transition. And so like, so from the moment that you kind of got your, your head into the, okay, I think this is going to be time um, from, you know, you had mentioned the industry and the economy and so, certain things like that. 
what was your level of exposure to understanding what your company was worth, what the process was, and maybe kind of explain the journey to getting to the point that you were at that table with that buyer? Well, again, I think like other entrepreneurs, business owners, I certainly thought my company was worth a lot more than what the the uh, the brokers and and the the lawyers and everybody else uh, came to in the end. But you know, my wife and I were realistic about it as well, and we were able to to work through that with everybody and come to to a number and evaluation that I think made sense for us, obviously, and for the individual that ended up buying our company. How did you guys, just to kind of take a pause there for a second. So how did you guys come? Because that is a big challenge that a lot of people struggle with because there is no, there's really no transparency right now. Like here's how you value a company and here's why, and here are the metrics and all that stuff. So there's a lot of guessing that goes on, which it makes it very difficult for entrepreneurs to plan anything. And mm-hmm. like, and each buyer will pay different amounts for different reasons and such. But like, so what was the process you guys went through and what did you find out of why it was not worth what you thought it was worth? Well, I, you know, I think we as business owners get a little too close to it. And and there are certain things intangibles perhaps where you look at and you go, well, you know, of course it's worth a lot more than this, but when you really break it down by the numbers and, and you do the percentages and I don't have all the equations in my head if it's you know 20% of you know 5 years revenue or whatever it is there's a lot of things that factor into it and I think it it depends on the type of business you know if it's if you carry inventory and if it's just for us it was all service based so you know there's no inventory it's basically just client base we were selling mm-hmm. um, but the the thing is is it's different for every company and I think that's why it's it, it's not that there isn't I think a lot of transparency. I think people don't want to put an exact equation to it because that equation doesn't apply to all businesses across the board. Mm-hmm. I think it's really unique. Every situation is really unique. And so you have to go through a, a very deliberate process to kind of come to that, that bottom line number. It's kind of like, and I think Derek would, would agree with this kind of circling back to, to Derek and the connection there. It's like branding a company. There's no set process or, or, or uh, you know, equation that you, you work through to get to your new brand identity. Every company is unique. Um, every individual, a business owner is unique. And how you get to that, that new identity, that new brand, it, it's different for every company. There's, you know, you follow some of the same steps, but mm-hmm. how you get there is different. The path is different. Well, it's interesting. Like, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you and like kind of my, my take on it since I've dove into this since our sale is that, you know, you've got like the financial benchmarks are always going to be the same. So you got, okay, there's a, you know, here's your EBITDA, you normalize it. And then there's a multiple applied to based on how risky your company is. Right. So, but that's if you, that's if it's going to be a purely a financial buyer, but you know, if you think about how many times there's just purely a financial buyer, you know, I, I mean, I, I actually don't know the, the total stats for the amount of transactions and how many are financial buyers, but then you, you layer on the fact that there's probably a strategic buyer or there's a strategic multiple reasons that they're buying you. Then it's totally like a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So like yeah. that's, it's more of an art than it is of the, like the pure financial science behind it. And I think that's something that also a lot of people struggle with because that art takes a lot of work and a lot of experience in order to master it. Yeah. And, and it, absolutely. There's it, the art, the intangibles and the things, you know, some of the things, those intangible things you can mitigate. And, and we did through, through our negotiation and sale by, 
you know, saying, okay, well, if I come on with a two-year employment agreement, which we negotiated independently, separately from the sale of the business, he was able to say, okay, well, you're willing to, to put a little skin in the game and, you know, do it on an earnout basis. And, you know, if you do that and you come on board, it's in both of our best interests for you to help transition those clients and, you know, further foster those relationships and bring on more new business. And so, and I was very confident in my ability to do that. And so I think that was a factor in the sale of the company as well. And he later told me, he said, well, if you hadn't agreed to a two-year employment agreement, I probably wouldn't have ended up, ended up purchasing your company. And what were his concerns because of the, it sounds like Honeywell was a big percentage of your customer base and stuff. So like throughout the due diligence, what were their concerns that had risen up? I mean, was it like, was it, you know, I think in the, the LinkedIn string, there was, you know, insights that you'd learned from the due diligence process and like how they were analyzing the different things that they were potentially concerned about. Well, I think yeah, obviously the, the main thing that anyone's concerned about is, is long-term uh, contracts, relationships, repeat business and, and revenue streams. And, you know, fortunately for me and for my company, years ago, we kind of changed our, our pricing structure and, and how we worked with clients. And that, that ended up being a very attractive piece of the sale because we weren't, as a service-based company, we weren't selling our time. We didn't track our time. We didn't bill by the hour. Everything was value-based billing. And it was based on long-term contracts, you know, three months, six months, 12 months, mm. and in some cases, 24 month contracts with clients. And we never, we never punched a clock. We never even tracked our time since I would say probably 2012, 13 on, I made all of my employees read, uh, I don't know if the title's correct. It's uh, value-based pricing by Ron Baker. Okay. I was going to ask you, how did you guys come to that determination? Was it, was it like, business like the operational way of doing it the, the other way was so painful that you found a way to do it differently or is it because you were trying to build the value of your business both yeah both i mean i i believe very strongly and and for me it was always about the relationships with the client and i wanted them to always feel like no matter what they could call me and i would be there for them and it wouldn't be okay i'm punching a clock i'm charging you for this phone call it was all about the relationship and the service that we could deliver for them. And I, I was very adamant when I was going through the, you know, some of the initial uh, discussions with potential clients and putting together proposals that you don't want to buy my time mm -hmm. because you can't afford me. Mm -hmm. If we do this on a value-based model, you get what you want and need. And so do I. I think it's, yeah, that's, it's extremely important. And I mean, if you think about, yeah, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but like CPAs and attorneys and consultants or anybody that bills on time, it, it's immediately like you have an adverse reaction to talking to the person. <laughs> so it's well, like, and, and not only that, not only do you, do you, does that, you know, kind of create that dynamic in the conversation and the negotiation, but it's focused on all of the wrong things. Right, right. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. if you can change that, why not? And it, I mean, obviously there's so many hours, so many hours in a day, if I'm billing by the hour and you know, I only get a couple hours of sleep a night, I might be able to bill 10 hours a day max. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
right? But if I'm billing on, on what that customer feels the value of that end deliverable is, mm-hmm. then if I can get that done in two hours, who cares? Yep. They don't either, right? Exactly. Everybody gets the outcome that they want. So you read that book, which significantly helps. So what are the, you know, as they're going through the due diligence, what were some of the other eye openers that you had realized? I mean, what, how was the due diligence experience? And then how many, you know, I, th- I heard you mentioned brokers. So did you actually hire a broker and how many? I did. I did. And again, I'm not going to name names. That was a, a poor decision on my part, at least the one that we picked. Um, I don't think they did anywhere near um, what they could have or should have done mm-hmm. um, based on the amount of money that they made from the, the, the sale of the company. Um, they had lawyers that they would bring in to the process and write all of the contracts up. I actually had to have my attorney rewrite everything because <laughs> it was horrible. It was I, just, I, it was garbage. You know, like I, I wish, I wish for everybody out in the market that this was the first time I heard that story. But yeah. like the amount of times that I hear these stories with brokers out there, it like, it's such a, it's, it, it destroys the wealth that people in the lower market have created <laughs> because yeah. There's no incentive for them to get the deals. I'm curious, like, what was their commission structure, and like, like how did, like, what was the percentage that they ended up getting from the total sale? Oh, I'd have to look back. I don't want to misquote a number. It was um, between five and ten percent, I'm assuming, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because it, yeah. it can even get really high. What which I find is so crazy because you like the fact that you said that your attorney had to look, which means that you were at least looking out for yourself. Because there's no incentive for them to even make sure that you net as much money up front or the deal structure is done correctly. The whole goal is just to get the deal done, right? Yeah. Yeah. Their incentive is, it is purely just to get the deal done. So did, would the, their compensation get impacted on whether you had an earnout or not? Um, it, it did, uh, but it was based on projected earnout. Mm. So if I blasted that out of the water, um, which I did, uh, they were, they were capped at a certain point with their own. Okay. okay. But like, I guess, yeah, which makes sense. And then, but at least the kind of my, my takeaways from all the stories I've heard is that, you know, if, if you got half up front versus half in an earnout, it's not like dramatically going to impact their comp. You know what I mean? So like, it's, they're not like overly incentivized to push the buyer to getting more up front because yeah. this isn't worth the effort for them. Yeah. So how, how did that process work? Like, I mean, did they help you do any preliminary due diligence before you started like the whole process and how many, how many potential buyers did you actually talk to or engage with or what was that kind of that whole situation? Yeah, actually, um, we, I think we, I sat down with maybe five or six different potential buyers. Um, so in the sense that as a broker, they were able to identify and bring in a number of interested parties in that sense, they did their job, but in the actual closing of, yeah. of the deal, it was just horrid. <laughs> it was just a, a mess. Um, and we actually had, I know we had two firm offers. Um, there might've been three offers total, um, which is not real common, uh, right. especially for a business like ours and, and mm-hmm. the size of ours. Um, and I ended up, you know, picking the, the, the one that ended up purchasing us just because I thought it was a, a better fit all around. Well, and let's, let's, I think that's important for the listeners to really understand too, because 
like, I, I mean, actually I talked to a friend who just recently sold his company at 25 offers. I mean, it's a, it's depending on the size of the business, the industry, it's kind of hot out there, but like, I think just because you have three offers sitting in front of you, doesn't mean they're the same, right? <laughs> oh no, no, they were vastly different. And can you explain the difference of them from like maybe the structures or what they were offering and the, the actual people or companies? Cause, and what did you, what did you mean by better fit? Um, well, of the three, um, there was one set of buyers that were basically just investors. Um, and they were looking at uh, trying to acquire businesses that were just going to make them money. That's all they were focused on. Mm -hmm. There was another one that was essentially exactly like me, uh, had run successful creative agencies in the past, you know, kind of done the roller coaster ride up and down with a couple different companies and was looking to ramp it back up and um, lowballed me an offer. And I wasn't going to take it. Right. And then the other one was, uh, uh, which was the, the buyer that ended up uh, acquiring us, um, many years in the business had 17 acquisitions previous to ours. Oh, wow. Um, but was in a, more of a manufacturing side of creative mm -hmm. and wanted to get more into the, the marketing strategy and you know, brand development and creative um, and kind of expand his business and, and revenue streams. And it just seemed like a really good fit. Uh, and so that's, that's how we move forward. And the offer was good. So well, that's super interesting. So what was the actual bit? So you said manufacturing. So they were not great. They were not a creative agency or anything where it was more just like a bolt on to what they were already doing. And so what was, what's their background and what, what was the value other than the, the cash on the clients? Like what was like their motive for getting the deal done? Well, again, when I say manufacturing, it was, it was print-based. So Got it. Okay. Um, 25 years in the print industry um, and knew it inside and out. And uh, obviously, based on what we did from a marketing creative standpoint, more often than not, we would get a lot of you know, print work and do a lot of print work for our clients. And we would sometimes broker it and sometimes just refer it out to, to great vendors. And, and so for me, I thought it was a good fit. He, he, the, the buyer, uh, for a number of years had wanted to expand and kind of grow his business more into that creative space and, and have it be more service relationship based. Um, and so he thought, well, I've acquired 17 companies already and they were primarily print-based companies. Um, best way for me to, to make this shift and, and migration is to, to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was like the, the dialogue that you guys were having, you know, as you, as the numbers are kind of slowly working themselves out as far as like what your role is going to be and like explain like the emotional or the, 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 the thought process you're having along that as far as like reimagining yourself working for someone else. Um, well, I, I think I had decided when I decided to sell the company, I had already begun that that kind of emotional shift or separation for mm -hmm. so many years. I mean, since its inception, the, the company was so closely linked to my own personal identity that when I decided to sell, I had to almost immediately start to create a separation from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, even to the extent that uh, the, the brand and the colors in the brand we picked orange because I have a photograph of me when I was three years old in an orange polo shirt <laughs> and it was my favorite shirt. Right. And so the, the company brand and logo had the color orange and that was our, you know, our primary color. And 
even to the extent that you ask any one of my friends or business colleagues, what's the primary color in my, my closet, my wardrobe, orange, be orange. (laughs) And so everything, what I wore, who I was, uh, how I acted, everything was so closely intertwined and integrated into that brand and that identity that I had to, I had to start to buy new clothes. (laughs) <laughs> did you did you go to blue? Like was it the complete yeah, actually I did. I was no like, way. hey, you know, my my wedding, uh the colors at our wedding were blue. My wife loves blue. So yeah, I, I actually deliberately started to shift my wardrobe, my color, my mentality, everything to more of just a calmer, more laid back blue. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So well, you know, as you were doing that, Tom, because I think that's a lot of I've, you know, some, from some of the interviews, some of the people that said that they went through a process to sell their business and it took them a while, they had a little bit more time to almost unwind that identity and that emotional tie. Is there like, were you just kind of naturally doing that as you kind of were like reimagining what this is going to look like? Or was there other things that you did that helped in like, maybe a, a more detailed question would be is like, you know, your work-life balance before you ended up kind of going down this road, like, did you have outside hobbies and outside social connections and stuff like that, that helped with that process? Or did you have to really start to like, start from ground zero? No, yeah, I think it was a slow transition. I mean, like I said, from the, the time that I decided to sell, I started to mentally make that transition. And it didn't really manifest itself physically until, you know, I started to actually change my wardrobe and things like that. But I also had the benefit of, of working for the new owner for 20 months, almost two years. Um, and, and even more, more so make that transition mentally, physically, um, and otherwise. I was really good friends and still am with all of the employees that I brought in mm-hmm. to the sale. Um, and, and so that, I even had to navigate some of those waters and, and create some separation there and say, mm-hmm. you know, we can still chat and be friends and go out for drinks, but you know, it's, it's different now. Um, so yeah, I I would say overall, I probably had close to four years to kind of make Mm -hmm. that mental and physical separation. Um, and that helped that helped having that time. Think about that. That's four years, right? I mean, so like, and it still probably is not a hundred percent closure. Oh no, I still have, I'm, I'm wearing a sweatshirt right now that has the, my old company logo on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So, but Tom, like, like, I'm curious in your experience when you like, so after that closing and how many employees did you have when you ended up selling? I think at the date of sale, we had six full-time employees and probably two to three contractors that we used on a very regular basis. So then what was it like for you? all of a sudden now not having the final say and like, as you're now having to deal with like how they are taking over customer service and handling your customers. Cause you had a level of pride and ownership over your customer service. And then also your employees who you were probably a, a high degree of the, the sense of culture. So as the culture and the management responsibilities got taken off of you and then also the, the customer service, how did that work? I mean, did you, did you, was there any kind of gap, in like where your style versus their style and like how did that emotionally sit with you well it was a blessing and a curse i would say a, a blessing in that I, I had the benefit now of you know if if something was not going the way somebody necessarily wanted it to i could say 
I don't own it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I had some separation in that way. The curse was, is that, yeah, I mean, for, for 20 plus years, I ran the business. I created the culture. I fostered those relationships and to not have the same level of control and ability to do that was difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately it's probably why I ended up leaving a little bit early uh, out of my two year employment agreement. Again, they're, they're doing their thing. They're doing it really well, but I, and it's more me, I guess, than them. Mm -hmm. Rightfully so. Yeah, I, I just the the emotions of it for me, and and I think pretty much any business successful business owner will agree, the relationships are everything. Mm -hmm. And I had great relationships with the or the not only employees but with my clients. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, and I'm I'm not just saying this, but I honestly didn't care how much money I was making for any from any one client. Mm -hmm. I cared about whether or not we were really helping them mm -hmm. and they knew that and that set the tone for the relationship and it set the tone for my company and my culture and all of my employees believed and felt the same way and not that they're not doing that now, but it's different. It's just different. Totally different. And it's like, it's like weird when you have like, and I, and I can kind of relate it to my own experience where like, yeah, when you, cause like I built out the managed IT services. So like all of a sudden you're taking out like new, like, you know, and the, and the document management and all these different, like where like people are taking a risk on you. So you treat them like Kings. And then all of a sudden when you're not responsible for the, like the final outcome for them, where there's a different variable in the mix, it's just tough. Cause you can't own it. <laughs> you're just yeah. like, you know, not like it's good or bad. It's just a totally different dynamic and relationship than you had prior to the the closing. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I, again, not that this is good or bad, or again, it's just different, but I was, I was the type of business owner and manager where, you know, we would do regular quarterly meetings, reviews. We worked the EOS system um, mm -hmm. and traction. We started implementing self implementing EOS probably five or six years before the, the sale of the company. Early adapter. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, they had worked it to, to one degree or another. And so having, you know, been on kind of the same operating system, uh, mm -hmm. more or less, it, it was very helpful in the, the transition and the sale of the company. But that said, I would, you know, have my, my weekly meetings, level 10 meetings. I'd have my quarterly meetings, um, you know, with my leadership team, annual meetings. But when one of my people, and, and again, we're high end, fairly high end professional services, creative services, writing. Um, when, when I found that an employee was doing just an overwhelmingly exceptional job, I'd reward them right then on the spot. It's not like we would have to wait for a review. It's right. like, you're doing a kick-ass job. You're making me money. Yep. You're helping my company. I'm going to help you. Mm -hmm. And so some of those decisions, then after the sale, I, I, they were taken from me, obviously, and rightfully, but I, I felt like, you know, that separation, again, created a different dynamic with the employees that were my employees previously. And so as much as I wanted to, to work with them and help them and reward them and do those certain things, I couldn't. I think you articulated that in an extremely well way, Tom, because like, I, it, it is not a good or a bad thing right? As far as who the buyer is. And sometimes, I mean, like sometimes there's really horrible, horrible stories too, but I think, you know, what you've described is something that the, the, the listeners and anybody that's going to, to sell at some point to a third party, like needs to just think about 
because like if there's a high degree of the the purchase price is going to be an earnout and tied to like performance of working for someone else, it's just a totally different dynamic. Even if they're good people, right? Like I remember sitting down with uh, Neil, the CFO of Loeffler, who purchased us when I when I resigned like a couple months in. <laughs> And like I was, I had pretty much most of, most of the attention to doing that. And he's like, why do you want to, why do you want to leave? I'm like, Neil, whose name is on the wall? <laughs> I'm like, it's not mine. That's my problem, not yours. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, I, 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 I couldn't have an idea on the way to work and implement it by noon. I mean, it just, it's just not the way it works and it's just not good or bad. It's just kind of the dynamics that just end up happening. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's funny because it's, it's one of the reasons why my wife, I mean, more recently within the last couple of weeks, she's like, well, you're really excited about starting another business at some point. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I, I woke up one morning and I was like, I have an idea. Like, uh oh, <laughs> uh -oh yep, yep. <laughs> Don't say anything, go to work or don't go do something, then come back and then tell me. <laughs> yeah. She's like, go to church, go to work. <laughs> So how are you, you know, with that, you know, the, the life after business and so now it's been a few years and you're off working for the church now. And, you know, what is like, how have you started? Like, what, what are things that have helped you, Tom, as you're starting to reimagine what the next chapter of your life is going to be like? Um, I would say ultimately it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. I, I don't regret my decision to, to sell the business. I think the time was right. Um, I think the buyer was right. I, I don't have any regrets with, with regard to that. Um, I would like to, to see my position with the church grow and, and, you know, probably stay with them for another 15 years, you know, if, if, uh, if it works out. Um, but it's, it's been the way I describe it to people is again, you know, it was like running a, a marathon for the last 20 years, but not just a marathon. I felt like I was running 110 miles an hour seven days a week for 20 years and no vacations you know business owners will relate to this when i went on vacation whether it was disney world or you know wherever with my kids my computer was always there at the hotel and my wife got mad at me when our kids were young i've got a 19 year old 17 year old 14 year old now but when our kids were young we took them to disney world and i took a phone call while we were at while we were there and my wife got really angry with me until I told her that I just paid for our entire trip. And then she was okay with it. <laughs> you know, that, that one phone call basically, you know, paid all the expenses for the trip, but that's, that's the way it was for 20 years. And that's the way, what my kids grew up with was, you know, yeah, we'll go out. If we're on vacation, we'll go out and have fun with dad during the day. But as soon as we get back to the hotel, he's working. And that was, that was our, our reality forever. And, you know, fa fast forward to the sale of the company, I'm not running 110 miles an hour, seven days a week anymore. I'm very busy with the church. It's fulfilling, it's rewarding, it's challenging. Um, I get to exercise some creative muscles that I haven't for a while because, you know, as a business owner, I, I hired that talent and stepped back from a lot of that. So mm -hmm. in some ways it's, it's even better. Um, but I have, I feel like I have a better balance. I'm, you know, I might be going 60 miles an hour most days, some days that ramps up to a hundred, but I have a better balance now, work, life, family. Um, and I'm still able to, to exercise, you know, who I am as a, as a creative person, as a entrepreneur. Um, fortunately my churches, uh, they don't like to, to use the word progressive, but they're a progressive church. And we're looking at ways that we can 
diversify and expand revenue for the church using my entrepreneurial talents. Uh, we're looking at adding a, a paid coffee shop uh, in, cool. into the church and, and even looking at, uh, there's a, a church in Chicago, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but they, they have a whole youth entrepreneurial program that they started and they launched a, a line of uh, body care products, lip balms, lotions, mm. and different things. And I think their annual revenue is somewhere in the neighborhood of like $7 million a year now, just from that youth entrepreneurial program. Wow. And for oh, me no. to bring my entrepreneurial, you know, talents and, and expertise to my church and my community and be able to do something like that, even if it wasn't anywhere near the 7 million, but if, if I could create a revenue stream that basically funds the, the church's entire annual uh, operating budget, mm-hmm. that would be so fulfilling for me as an entrepreneur, as a creative person, as a marketing person. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm able to, I was able to make that transition, I think, fairly well. Um, but that said, I, I do have ideas on certain things that I'd like to do in the future. And I, I can do that while I work at the church. And yeah. Well, I think that is unbelievably sweet, by the way. We're going to have to offline. I want to hear more about that program because that sounds pretty cool. And, yeah. but, you know, I think, you know, just some observations, Tom, is that like, you're able to, you're, you still have goals and creative abilities and use your skill sets. You're not just pretending you can play golf all day long. (laughs) Right. And and that's, I think there's this big, huge false notion that that's what is going to be in like where I'm going to retire and read books and do crossword puzzles and sit at Perkins at, you know, six 30 in the morning and, you know, versus like actually going out and doing what you're doing. And I'm I'm curious is like, well, first of all, it's like, like just your relationship and you're being able to like, you know, pull that relationship and, you know, invest more into it is awesome. But what was the experience? And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but is, the fact that you pulled some capital off the table and de- de-risked, did it allow you to then explore what you really wanted to do without having to make a bunch of money right off the bat? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, obviously with the church, well, obviously or not, with the church, I make a lot less money than, than what I paid myself and or what I was paid when I was um, mm-hmm. working for the new owner of my company. Um, but yeah, it definitely gave me and my family a little bit of freedom, um, to, to pursue and and to do some of those things. And my wife is finishing up her master's degree and has has just got a a new job uh, and and that's working out really well as well. So it's just the the ebbs and flows and the transitions of life. And we've been fortunate, uh, that the timing has worked out really well for us all, all through the process. Well, that's super cool. I'm super happy for you. And I think there's a, there's just a lot of entrepreneurs where they were so intertwined with their business and their identity when they pulled it off they got a bunch of money but they had no outlet to yeah. doing certain things even though the money doesn't matter so i think that's what i like, kind of what i was referring to at the church is like i kind of assume like yeah you're not getting paid buku bucks or anything like that but you're functionally you're still working with the people that you want to and solving the problems that you want to so therefore because of the the slight liquid liquidation event you don't have to so therefore it just doesn't really matter <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I do have other outlets. I mean, you mentioned, you know, some of the uh, extracurricular activities or hobbies or different things. And I, you know, yeah, I've got all of those things. I'm an avid martial artist and, and, you know, there's a a comment that I heard once more recently, and I know you want to cut this short, but um, you basically have three places. There's three places, three primary places that you go to in your life. And, And typically that's, that's work for people. Um, and this, I think, came from 
Starbucks or the owner of Starbucks or something because Starbucks wanted to be one of those three places. And for me, it's work, which is also church, home and family and the karate dojo. I have, those are my three main places. If, hmm. if, if you call me up, I'm, I'm at one of those three places every day of the week. Uh, but it helps keep me balanced. It helps keep me sane. That's super cool. I don't know if I've ever heard that three places, but that makes a ton of sense. (laughs) So as we're wrapping up here, Tom, um, is there, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we talked about. Is there one thing that maybe you want to highlight for the listeners and one thing that we didn't cover that you want to leave the listeners with? I guess, again, as business owners, we touched on it a bit in our conversation. Um, As a business owner, if you feel like your business is entirely intertwined and connected with your personal identity, explore that and figure out a way, if, you're, if you desire to sell your company down the road, figure out a way to navigate away from that a little bit. Create some separation. I think it'll be healthy for you whether you sell your company or not, um, but definitely will help you along that way uh, and that, that path to a sale. Couldn't have said it better myself. And that's the title of the podcast, right? (laughs) So what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you, Tom? Um, Probably my LinkedIn profile. And they can find me at, uh, it'll be slash, well, slash Tomad Art Guy. And I'll have that link, uh, the link in the show notes too. So Tom, I absolutely had a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It uh, It was a lot of fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tom. I loved how real he was about the entire process. And I've got a couple big takeaways for you as you're wrapping up this episode. And the one big takeaway is that if you think about what you want way ahead of time, so one to three years out, if you're planning on taking your company to market in 2019, the first part of 2019, there's only so many things you're going to be able to do. But if you think about what you want between the next 12 to 48 months, so one to three years, four years, then you can start doing the things inside the business that you need to, to clean it all up, get you prepped, understanding how much money you need up front, how much money you're willing to take over time. And then the more value building things you do inside your business, you can go get the exit that you want, whether it's a third party that's a strategic buyer or a private equity financial buyer or an ESOP or an internal transition. You understanding what you want will help you then build the plan and go get what you actually deserve and what you want. Because if you don't think about this stuff, there's a high probability that you could be sitting across a table from a potential buyer that is one out of a handful of buyers that has terms, conditions, and a situation in front of you where you might be forced to be an employee over the course of the next two to three years in order to get the money that you need to actually be financially free. And if you can get most of that, as much of that money up front as you possibly can, because you've done certain things in the business, then the rest can be gravy and you can feel like you're not trapped once that thing is closed and you are sitting there in strategic meetings knowing you can't make any decisions because you're an employee. So if you are not familiar with the GEXP collaborative process, go onto our website and take a look at what the process is that will help you understand what all your exit options are, how to increase the value of your business, and go get and engineer the exit that you want so that way you can be as happy as you possibly can be afterwards and get the money that you deserve because you've maximized your outcome. 
Tom was extremely lucky because of how much thought he put in through it over the years. But I just really encourage you to not wait until you're burnt out because you're going to make sacrifices that you wish you wouldn't have. And there's going to be a high degree of probability that you might be regretful post-closing. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you got any more questions, go into our website, shoot us an email. Otherwise, I will see you next week.